inclined with the reading of the form for that. Scripture reading now is 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. The epistles of 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus are often called the pastoral epistles because they are the instruction of the Apostle Paul to pastors Timothy and Titus. And in this chapter, there is very explicit instruction for the minister. This is God's word, 2 Timothy 2, beginning at verse 1. Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men, who shall be able to teach others also. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. And if a man also strive for masteries, yet he is not crowned, except he strive lawfully. The husbandman that laboreth must be first partaker of the fruits. Consider what I say, and the Lord give thee understanding in all things. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead, according to my gospel, wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even unto bonds. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sakes, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. It is a faithful saying, for if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. Of these things put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord, that they strive not about words to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness, and their word will eat as doth a canker, of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already, and overthrow the faith of some. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his, and... Let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth, and some to honor and some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use and prepared unto every good work. Flee also youthful lusts, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them that call on God out of a pure heart. 
But foolish and unlearned questions avoid, knowing that they do gender stripes, and the servant of the Lord must not strive. But be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledge of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil, who are taken captive by him at his will. That's the reading of the scripture. The text is the last three verses there, where in verse 24, the apostle is contrasting what he just said in verse 23. Avoid foolish and unlearned questions, knowing that they do gender strifes, and then the text, and the servant of the Lord must not strive, that is, fight, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil, who are taken captive by him, at his will. Well, tonight as a congregation of Dune Protestant Reformed Church, we celebrate the gift of another pastor. In my counting, looking at the Acts of Synod, this is Dune's 15th minister in the history of this congregation in Northwest Iowa. The Lord has been good to you as a congregation, and the Lord is good to you tonight in providing to you your 15th minister, a faithful man of God. We tonight celebrate the gift of another minister and thank God for him. If you think of all of the vacancies in our denomination, it's all the more striking. There are churches that don't have pastors. There are churches that have been vacant longer than you, although over two years is not a short vacancy. And the Lord granted to you a faithful minister in his goodness and in his wisdom. So tonight we celebrate and thank God for the gift of a minister. We do that, though, carefully, very carefully. And the carefulness with which we celebrate that is the carefulness of knowing what a minister is and what he isn't, what a minister ought to do and what he ought to avoid doing. Who is this minister of the gospel? There's a calling in the text this evening to the servant of the Lord, which servant is not just Reverend Klein, but all of the elders and deacons in the congregation, but especially to him. There's a calling to the servant of the Lord, and that calling begins with what he must not do. And then the calling continues with what he must do, but it also includes how he must do it. Because the word of God, and now I must not exaggerate, you judge how strongly this must be said, the word of God says a great deal about what a minister must do, but also a great deal about how the minister does it. What he must not do is strive. That is, quarrel. What he must do is teach. 
And how he must do it is very clearly explained in the text with gentleness and patience and meekness instructing you. That's his calling. That's the manner of his work. So let's look at this text tonight at the occasion of the installation of your new minister under the theme, The Service of the Lord's Servant. Obviously, a play on words, it's textual. The service of the Lord's servant. And then in the first place, see that he is a servant. In the second place, see what his service is. And then in the third place, see how that relates to your and our salvation. The service of the Lord's servant. He's a servant who serves unto your salvation. A very simple explanation of the text. He is a minister, is a servant. By very definition of that word that we use to describe him, a minister, he is a servant. But he is a servant of the Lord, and that's what needs emphasis first. This text gives us all opportunity to make a grand confession tonight. It's the confession that's going to be heard. Listen, listen to the future. Listen to the day that Jesus Christ returns. Hear everyone, not just the church, not just God's people, but everyone in that great day. They're going to be saying, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's going to be the confession that's wrung out of some who are unbelieving, but their knees are going to bow and their tongues are going to confess also. But it comes from our mouths because it comes from our hearts as a confession that we love to make. Jesus is Lord. Now we mean by that that he is the owner of everything rightful owner of all of creation because all things were made by him and for him and so he governs the world as Lord. But it's not that confession that we're making first of all here when we say the servant of the Lord. The confession that we are making is that he is our Lord by his redemption of us. He purchased us and made us his precious possession. He and the elders and deacons are servants of him, the Lord. What he is of all things, I say again, by virtue of his creation of all things, he is of us by virtue of his redemption of us. He's ruler, he's sovereign, he governs, he owns everything. Together, in your mind and in your heart, make that confession now. Jesus Christ is Lord. And the minister is his servant. What we confess, Jesus Christ is Lord, now shifts to what he confesses. I am his servant. I am his slave, really. Fact of the matter is that's the confession all of us make. We are the servants and really the slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I am more than a servant of him. A servant may come and go different times and be out from under the authority of the master, not a slave. A slave is always under the authority of the master. To do the bidding of the one who redeemed him and the people he serves, to ask every moment, what is the will of my Redeemer? How best can I carry that out? That's what this servant of the Lord is always asking. He says what the servant of the Lord, the servant of the Lord asked and said, I come to do thy will, O Lord. Thy law is in my heart. The spirit of that Lord is now in this servant, and he says the very same thing. I come to do the will of the Lord. Now, there are a number of implications of that, and they ought to be spelled out tonight. And the first implication is that the ministry of the gospel is full-time. It's lifetime, unless the Lord in his providence takes the office away from a man. But that's another matter. What I am saying tonight is that this work is full-time. He may never shrug off the mantle of being your minister. He may never say, on Sunday and Monday and Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, I am a minister of Jesus Christ, but on Saturday, I am my own man. He is, every day of the week and 24 hours of the day, a servant, a slave of the Lord. He never checks out, whether it's in the pulpit and the catechism room and the council chamber and on family visitation or in his own home and on his vacation, he is a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first implication, servant of the Lord. Second, he's not your Lord. There is an old saying or word that we Dutch folk, many of us are Dutch ancestry, used to use referring to the minister. We called him the Domini. Now, if you look that up in the Dutch, it probably just meant pastor. And yet it came to mean something a little bit more than that, where we were inclined to elevate the pastor up into the position of a Lord. And he is not Lord. He is not your Lord. He is a servant of the one who is your Lord. Every moment, every day, he asks, how can I be your servant because I am his servant? That's a beautiful thing, people of God. You've called a man who now sees himself and always sees himself as a servant of your Lord Jesus Christ. Third implication, his will is not your authority. You don't do what he wants. His will is not your authority. And that works out practically this way, that when office bearers work and deliberate and make decisions, they're always asking themselves, what does Christ want? 
for this congregation. And they always remind themselves, our will doesn't rule. It ought to be burned on the consistory table. Servants of the Lord. Or thy will be done, not our will. There's a danger there. There's a danger for office bearers, especially just because they are called for the gifts that God gave them. For the gifts that God gave them intellectually, for their spirituality, for the other qualities that the Word of God lays out for them. There's a temptation to pride, for one thing, but there's also a temptation to imagine that I may make a decision as to what is good for this congregation. And then they are reminded every time they meet and make decisions, we want to do the will of the Lord. We are servants of the Lord. And the fourth implication of this, more remote, is that every servant is always willing to learn. Whether that's a servant who's just in the ministry or a servant as your pastor who's been in the ministry for some years, whether it's an elder who is serving for his first term or a man who may say to himself, this is my last term, the servant of the Lord is always willing to learn. He has a teachable spirit. And if that's a danger for the elders, that's a special danger for the minister because the minister is specially trained and qualified and equipped for this work. The exhortation to this minister tonight from the Word of God is, your Lord is going to be teaching you. You must be willing to learn from Him. So our confession in the first point here is, first of all, Jesus Christ is Lord. And our confession in the second place is, we are his servants, slaves. All of us are, and especially the minister and the elders. And then in the third place, our confession here in this third point is, strange as that may seem, the Lord is pleased to rule them, we say, as office bearers through us. That's not a contradiction of what I just said, that we are not your lords. Christ is your Lord. Our will must not be imposed upon you, His. It's not a contradiction to say at the very same time, it is His pleasure to rule you as a congregation, young and old, through him and the elders. That's the teaching of the text, too. That's the teaching of all of the scripture. Of course, you remember what Paul said in Hebrews 13, verse 17. Obey them that have the rule over you. The apostle was talking about men. Men have the rule over you, and those men you must obey. Everyone's familiar with the passage in 1 Timothy chapter 5 that says, give double honor to the elders that rule well. There is rule in them. And what 1 Timothy 3 says about the qualifications for elders 
if they cannot rule their own home, they're not qualified to rule in the congregation. And all of that is very plain teaching of the Bible that their work is to rule over you. How that fits will come in just a moment, but I want to point out that that's the teaching of the text. The text. In the text is that versatile, I call it a versatile Greek word, that is translated here in verse 25, instructing. In meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. That's the word that describes the calling of parents with regard to their children and is sometimes translated in the way that makes the children think, oh, the spanking stick. Oh, the belt. Oh, the quiet time or the grounding. That word that sometimes is translated teach and sometimes translated chasten or chastise. The elders and the minister have the calling to do that in the congregation. And that's true, that is, now we put those two together, that Christ is Lord, we are his servants, but he is pleased to rule us congregation through those servants exactly because Christ rarely does anything immediately, that is, without means. Now, remember your catechism instruction when we learn about regeneration? Is it immediate? That is, does God use means to regenerate us? We usually say no, it's immediate, without means. But other than regeneration, we always teach that most of the works of God are done by means. Now think about how that works out. He, God uses agents. How does he rule you as, magis, uh, as citizens in the state of Iowa? Well, through the magistrates, the policeman who you know is hiding around the next corner, or those cameras that I was good at putting up to give you tickets so that you don't go too fast. We were warned about them, all right? That's how God rules us, in part, as citizens, through the magistrates and the warnings and the threats of magistrates. If you go to work tomorrow morning and you have a boss, how does he govern you in your occupation? Well, through your boss, through the foreman, through the one who is over you. Or may I make it plainer to you children? God governs you. But you think of what the Heidelberg Catechism says about how he governs you. It pleases him to govern you by the hand of your parents, by their hand. You must bear patiently with their weaknesses and infirmities because, the Word of God says, that's how God governs you, by their hand. And that's true even in creation. We don't think of it this way very often, but when that lightning bolt comes down in a summer thunderstorm, you ought to think, though don't go too far in this, of the angels throwing those lightning bolts down. And when it's time for the storm to be finished, you ought to think in your mind's eye of the angels sweeping away the clouds so that the sun can come through. You ought to think when there's an earthquake in Afghanistan that God sent angels down to shake the earth. Otherwise, we become naturalists. We become deists, that is, those who imagine that God simply made the worlds 
and everything happens by natural laws. Well, there are what we call natural laws, but God is pleased, even in creation, to use agents to accomplish His will. Now bring that all the way back to the church. How is God pleased to govern you spiritually? By the agents who are called ministers and elders especially. The Lord rules us through them. Now two very brief implications of this, and the first is that's why we're members of churches. There are people today who believe that they can be good Christians and submit to the will of God and the rule of Jesus Christ without being members of a church. I'll listen to tapes, they say. We will read good books. We will meditate on the Bible. We will pray, but we will not, some of them say, be members of the church. They need to remember this word of God. It pleases God to rule his people by means of elders and ministers. If ever you're tempted to say, I am tired of church membership, I am going to die outside of the church. Remember what the church said in the past for generations and centuries, and then remember why. The church said outside of the church is no salvation. Salvation is to be found here because God's means of grace are found here. And the second implication is that this is why, as members, we remind ourselves. Now, to make that very practical, you are sitting in the pew in Dune Protestant Reformed Church, and there is the minister, and there are the elders wherever they are. It is important for you to remind yourselves my Christ rules me through these men. He, now, one of them, the Word of God says, is a servant of the Lord. His service, especially, now we come to the second point, his service as the Lord's servant is, can be summarized, I think, briefly this way, to teach sinful people of God. Simply that, to teach in a very careful way. There's a way not to do it, and there's a way to do it. We'll talk about the way in a moment. But this is his calling, to teach the sinful people of God. And now it's our turn to make another confession. And that confession needs to be as loud as the confession that we made about the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And that's this. We are sinful people. That's who we are. We are sinful people. We are stubborn by nature. We are rebellious. We are sometimes refractory, sometimes retractable. And those big words simply mean this, children. We are rebels by nature. That's who we are. We are sinful people of God. And when I say refractory and rebellious and retractable, I do not mean to say that we're all troublemakers and that we're all going to be on the radar of the elders because we're making trouble. 
worthy of discipline. I don't mean to say that. There are those in the congregation, often, God forbid that they are there very many and very frequently, but this is a description of our natures, and all of us may make this confession together. Start with the confession of the first point. Jesus Christ is Lord. Continue with the confession of the first point. We are his servants and slaves. And the third confession of the first point. There are certain ones whom Christ as Lord is pleased to appoint to rule us. Now make this confession. The ones that they have to deal with, us, are sinful, rebellious people by nature. If that isn't plain to you, without me making it plain from the text, and let me do that just for a moment. If you look at the context of the chapter and the text, the ministers and elders, see, elders need to oversee and supervise. Same words, aren't they? Oversee and supervision. Same words. That's their calling. They need to be examining us. Why? Exactly because there is often this kind of conduct among us. Verse 14, we strive about words to no profit. Sound familiar? That's our nature. Or verse 16, we engage in profane and vain babbling that increases to not godliness, but ungodliness. We are tempted to use words that eat like a canker. A canker on a leaf spreads. Or think cancer or gangrene, as the word in the original is. That's what words that can come out of our mouths can do. We are tempted to engage in, verse 23 says, foolish and unlearned questions that beget quarrels. And that's only in this chapter. Read the whole of the book and see what the Apostle Paul is telling Pastor Timothy to prepare to find in congregations. But then go back to the text. And remember, in the first place, that that word instructing is often best translated disciplining and correcting. And then look in the text at that word patience. Why must a minister and elders have patience? Exactly because they need to endure the ills that are inflicted upon them, the words spoken about them. They need patience for that. There are those who take the contrary position. That's what it means. There are people who oppose themselves. The church has those kind of people who either oppose themselves or oppose the elders. That's in our nature to be that way. We are tempted to teach the opposite of what the minister teaches. We are tempted to live in a manner that contradicts the will of the Lord. And sometimes we are so inclined to do that and so stubbornly determined to do that that we go all the way into that trap. And the door goes closed on us, if it's a live trap, or the spring closes on our foot and we are captured. That's the figure of speech 
that's used in the text at the end. There are some of the people of God that need recovery out of the snare of the devil because the devil took them captive at the devil's will. That may be a description of you someday. It may be a description of me someday. God forbid. But the word of God says that's what ministers and elders have to face and see as a possibility. Sometimes we are so careless that we don't listen to all of the warnings and we see that bait in that trap. And we think that we can go all the way in and sneak it out without tripping the door and we find that that door closes on us and now we are captured by the devil. God's people can be captive by him. The congregation is made up of that kind of sinful men and women. The implications here are in the first place that the elders and minister must not be shocked and surprised when that happens. And we often are. And then we need to remind ourselves, the word of God says, the devil is so deceitful and subtle, sly, that some of the sheep may well walk into his snare. Don't be surprised. That does not give any of us license to play around by his bait. We ought to flee it as much as we can. But it reminds us that we must confess together. We must resist our natural tendencies and pray, Lord, lead us not into temptation. Instead, Lord, deliver us from evil. And we need to pray, let not sin have dominion over us because at times it can. And the second implication related to that is that it's wisdom, people of God, to have our eyes wide open. First, to our own natural tendencies. But then to what we may face around us. You elders and minister will face some who contradict your words and oppose your labors. And that's the kind of work that keeps you awake at night. Sometimes men who aren't elders may think that they would like to be an elder and that's a good aspiration. But if you are not, just realize what's going on in the meetings of the consistory. And then after the meeting of the consistory and the minister and the elders go home and weep because of some of the things that they need to deal with. And don't sleep because of some of the things that they need to deal with. And that's why the word of God says in the text, a minister must endure hardness as a good soldier of our Lord Jesus Christ. Is that surprising? If the Lord Jesus Christ himself said, they opposed me, they contradicted me, they misunderstood me, and I'm not talking about Judas, I'm talking about my own disciples. And those who later were converted, if that was true for me, it will be true for you. First confession with regard to the second point, we are sinful. 
But it's exactly because of that that comes the most important exhortation in the text. This is how you deal with those sinful men and women and young people and children. Don't fight with them. Don't strive with them. But in patience and meekness and gentleness, teach them. They are the people of God. That's how you need to view them. They're the redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, sheep. And the Lord says, their Lord says about them, you, elders and ministers, must be very careful how you deal with them. Teach them. Teach them. And so the, the text is full of expressions with regard to teaching. Teach the sinful people of God. So, of course, in the text at the beginning, verse 24 says that the servant of the Lord must be apt to teach. So that shows us his calling, teach, but it says he must have an aptitude to teach. And that's not just an ability to teach, but an inclination to do so. He wants to be a teacher. He wants to be able to open the word of God with those that oppose Christ and teach them. Before his meetings, he always wants to open the word of God and learn something from the word of God so that what he learned can be given to them. Them. He must be a teacher. Comes out in the second place in verse 25. In meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. Comes out in another way at the end of verse 25 that you might not notice in the first read that when God gives repentance to these who are stubborn, this is how that repentance appears. They acknowledge truth. If God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. And all of that, with all of the rest of the scripture, paints for us a picture of the calling, especially of the minister of the word of God, but all of the elders with him, they must teach. This week, children, you're going to have Reverend Klein as your catechism teacher. Many of you, all of you, most of you, he's going to be your teacher. His calling is to teach you. His calling as a teacher of you is to inoculate you. That is a kind of flu shot that will preserve you from the diseases that you might otherwise get if you weren't inoculated. And I am saying nothing about my view of vaccinations. Nothing. Only an analogy. His teaching of you is going to, by the grace of God, preserve you from the devil's snare. He needs to teach you about the lordship of Christ over you. Listen to him. He's going to teach you about how he redeemed you and what he thinks of you. He's going to teach you about his providential care of you, that sometimes those providences are going to be frowning providences that are very difficult to bear. And he's going to teach you about hope, what's going to happen in the future, and what you may be sure is going to happen in the future. 
He's going to teach you what a godly walk in gratitude to God is. He's going to teach you about the commandments and the good confession that you ought to make. And he's also going to teach you about your sinful natures. To beware that you are able to commit any sin. Not permitted, but you are able to be susceptible to every kind of sin imaginable. Beware of the devil's wiles. So he's going to teach you. And when you fall into error, he and his colleagues, the elders, are going to warn you of the lie that threatens you and does damage to you. <coughs> Listen, people of God, to the form for the ordination and installation of the minister in a little while. Remember what we read in the passage in chapter 2, verse 14. Put these things in remembrance. That is, have them memorize truth. Rightly divide, verse 15 says, the word of truth. Verse 16, shun profane and vain babblings. Just ignore those things. Put them away and stick with teaching truth. Don't do what Hymenaeus and Philetus did, whose word eats like a canker. And you go through the rest of the passage and you see that this is their calling, to teach us who are the sinful people of God. But now that brings out what stands out in this passage in a very striking way. We all understand the calling of the minister to teach and the elders to teach, but we don't often remember the warning that you are going to be tempted to strive and the servant of the Lord must not strive. That does not mean, people of God, that the servant of the Lord must not battle as a good soldier. He must battle. There are two different words used in this chapter. Strive in verse 5 means to endure as an athlete in order to win the contest. It's the word from which we get our word athlete from. But the word here means to be quarrelsome. You mustn't be quarrelsome when you are a warner. You mustn't be sarcastic. You mustn't be caustic. You mustn't be hot-headed and angry, and vehement, and looking for a fight. The servant of the Lord must not strive. And that warning is so important just because those who are caught in the snare of the devil, it may be you sometime, it may be me sometime, when we're caught in the snare of the devil, that's how we're going to behave. Caustic, sarcastic, hot-headed, with a temper, angry, shouting. And the word of God says, you, servants of the Lord, must not behave yourselves that way. The members under your care may do that to you. You must not return to them what they have given to you. And if you ask the obvious question that ought to be asked, why not? Why not? Well, the easy answer is because the Lord never strove in that way. He never did. When he was threatened, he did not threaten again. 
when he was reviled, he reviled not. He committed his way to God who judges righteously. Read the Gospels and listen to how our Lord Jesus Christ conducted his ministry. But that doesn't explain why. And that's the most important point of the sermon tonight. Why not strive? Exactly because striving does not accomplish the salvation of the people who are under our care. It doesn't help them to punch back. It won't bless them in any way to be angry in return with that hot-headed, tempestuous anger. The power of God, to put it better, the power of God unto salvation is not conveyed in quarrels and brawls and contentious spirits. It's not. The power of God unto salvation is the still, small voice of the truth of the word of God. Now just think about the Bible passages that make it clear. What did Jesus say in John 17 about sanctification? Here's the setting now. The consistory is dealing with a man or a woman or a young people, a young person who's living an unsanctified life, an unholy conduct. They need sanctification. Listen to what Jesus prays in John 17. Lord, sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. It won't help that man or woman or young person to have you fight with them. What will help them is that you bring to them the truth. There's another setting. A man or a woman or a young person in the congregation is unbelieving. Maybe they say, I believe, help thou my unbelief. Maybe they say, I do not believe. And then you remember what the apostle says in Romans chapter 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The word of God must be opened and explained and applied in every circumstance. Like this one. The elders are dealing with someone who's ensnared by the devil perhaps in an addiction or some other horrible sin that they're not able of themselves to escape from. How do the elders work? Maybe send them to a professional. Maybe send them to a clinic for detox or whatever else may be necessary. But never without this, the truth of the word of God because it's the truth that shall set you free. And that's because, and now we go to the bottom of the matter, that's because the truth that you as minister and elders speak is the voice of Christ, and it's the voice of the good shepherd that has the power to sanctify me, and the power to justify me, and the power to deliver me from unbelief, and the power to rescue me from the snare of the devil. It's only the voice of my Lord Jesus, the Lord who owns me. The power of him is heard when I teach. And the people don't hear that voice. We 
and you raise yours. And the people don't hear Jesus when your face turns red and you shake in anger. They don't hear Jesus when you're sarcastic as they're sarcastic. They hear Jesus when in patience and meekness and gentleness you teach them and respond to them with the word of God. So when the text says the servant of the Lord must not strive, that's not a bad translation because it almost sounds as though it, it's not appropriate that he strive. It's not becoming of his office. It doesn't fit his work. What's becoming of that servant's office is that he teach. But there's another way to translate it, and that's this. It's not necessary to strive. That's the literal Greek. Not, it is necessary to fight. Why put it that way? Well, because our inclination always is, when they put up the dukes, we put up the dukes. It's not necessary to strive. What's necessary is to teach the very word of God. That's what God will use for their salvation. He's pleased, the word of God says, by our word to save those that hear us. You see, the salvation of the refractory sinner is in view, isn't it? Their repentance is in view, isn't it? And you remember now right here what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 7, godly sorrow leads to repentance unto salvation. Here is repentance. Following repentance is there receiving the blessing of salvation again and again and again. And you remember what Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, 16 to Timothy, teach, teach, be faithful in teaching because when you do, you will save yourself and you will save those that hear you. And that's not puzzling. That's not a problem. We say salvation is God's. How can a minister save? And the answer is what we said earlier, that God is pleased to use the minister as his agent to bring his word, by which word is the people's salvation. We want them to recover themselves out of the snare of the devil. I use that illustration because I have varmints in my backyard that I don't like, especially when they crawl up on my deck and make a mess out of my deck. So I have a live trap and I have a hand trap. I don't want to ever get to get caught in a, in a live trap or have my bones broken in a live trap and have someone kill me. When I do, see you, or when you see me in one of those traps, spiritually, then we sympathize with each other, and we do everything that we can to rescue them. What verse 26 says may be misunderstood, that they recover themselves out of the snare of the devil. That doesn't mean self-salvation. It means literally that they come to their senses and escape out of the snare of the devil. Or as the Dutch puts it, that they wake up. Reminds you of the prodigal son, blinded to his sin, who went out and spent all of his money prodigally. 
And then by the Spirit of God, he woke up. He came to his senses. That's the idea here. God may use you in your work, office bearers and members, to recover them out of the snare of the devil. God does that, though, doesn't he? God grants repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. I can't make you repent. And if anyone has children, they know that they can't make their children repent either. They may make the children do what they tell them to do by force of will and threat of discipline, but no parent can go into that domain that only God can enter, and no elder or minister can go into the domain that God can enter. God must grant repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. We don't know if he will either. That's why the text ends by saying, if peradventure, God will give repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. That's his domain, the heart of that stubborn sinner that you are talking about in the consistory room. That's his domain, your young son or daughter who isn't living in in obedience to God. That's God's domain, the heart of that young man or young woman. And this is our prayer. God, please grant them repentance. This is our hope as we keep on teaching and never stop teaching and never stop praying and never stop bringing the word. Lord, grant repentance daily to me. Grant repentance daily to every one of us, a repentance that leads to salvation. Conscious, beautiful fellowship with God and God's Son And we pray, Lord, use thy word to work salvation in them and in many. And we pray, Lord, qualify this man and the elders that supervise his work, qualify this man to do that kind of teaching that God is pleased to use it. The still, small voice of instruction from the word of God to our salvation. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank thee for thy word. Use it now for all of our good. Pardon what we have done and said in sin. And now bless the service of ordination and installation of this brother. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Turn now to that form in the back of the Psalter. Found in my Psalter on page 104. I'm sorry, 100. 100. Or if you have different page numbers, it's after the forms for ex- excommunication and readmittance. But I was going to sing first, so let's sing and then we'll read the form. And then after the form and the installation, the 
doxology. Let's sing together number 353. 353. Let's sing one and three of 353. Now the form. <coughs> Beloved brethren, it is known unto you that we have at three different times published the name of our brother, Reverend Klein, here present, to learn whether any person had ought to offer concerning his doctrine or life why he might not be installed into the ministry of the word. And whereas no one has appeared before us who has alleged anything lawful against his person, we shall therefore at present, in the name of the Lord, proceed to his installation. For which purpose you, Reverend Daniel Klein, and all those who are here present shall first attend to a short declaration taken from the word of God touching the institution and the office of pastors and ministers of God's word, where, in the first place, you are to observe that God our Heavenly Father, willing to call and gather a church, from amongst the corrupt race of men unto life eternal, doth by a particular mark of his favor use the ministry of men therein. Therefore Paul saith that the Lord Jesus Christ hath given some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Here we see that the Holy Apostle, among other things, saith that the pastoral office is an institution of Christ. 
what this holy office enjoins may easily be gathered from the very name itself, for as it is the duty of a common shepherd to feed, guide, protect, and rule the flock committed to his charge, so it is with regard to these spiritual shepherds who are set over the church, which God calleth unto salvation, and counts as sheep of his pasture. The pasture with which these sheep are fed is nothing else but the preaching of the gospel, accompanied with prayer and the administration of the holy sacraments. The same word of God is likewise the staff with which the flock is guided and ruled. Consequently, it is evident that the office of pastors and ministers of God's word is, first, that they faithfully explain to their flock the word of God, of the Lord, revealed by the writings of the prophets and apostles, and apply the same as well in general as in particular to the edification of the hearers, instructing, admonishing, comforting, and reproving according to everyone's need, preaching repentance toward God and reconciliation with him through faith in Christ, and refuting with the Holy Scripture all schisms and heresies which are repugnant to the pure doctrine. All this is clearly signified to us in Holy Writ, for the Apostle Paul saith that these labor in the word, and elsewhere he teacheth that this must be done according to the measure or rule of faith. He writes also that a pastor must hold fast and rightly divide the faithful and sincere word which is according to the doctrine. Likewise, he that prophesieth, that is, preacheth God's word, speaketh unto men to edification and exhortation and comfort. In another place, he proposes himself, us, as a pattern, as a pattern to pastors, declaring that he hath publicly and from house to house taught and testified repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. But particularly, we have a clear description of the office and ministers of God's word, 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20, where the apostle thus speaketh, and all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us, namely to the apostles and pastors, the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. Concerning the refutation of false doctrine, the same apostle saith, Titus 1.9, that a minister must hold fast the faithful word of God, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convince the gainsayers. Secondly, it is the office of the ministers publicly to call upon the name of the Lord in behalf of the whole congregation. For that which the apostles say, we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word, is common to these pastors with the apostles, to which St. Paul alluding, thus speaketh to Timothy, I exhort therefore, first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority. 
1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. Thirdly, their office is to administer the sacraments which the Lord hath instituted as seals of His grace, as is evident from the command given by Christ to the apostles, and in them to all pastors, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Likewise, for I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, and so forth. Finally, it is the duty of the ministers of the word to keep the church of God in good discipline and to govern it in such a manner as the Lord hath ordained. For Christ, having spoken of Christian discipline, says to his apostles, Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And Paul will have the ministers to know how to rule their own house, since they otherwise neither can provide for nor rule the church of God. This is the reason why the pastors are in Scripture called stewards of God and bishops, that is, overseers and watchmen, for they have the oversight of the house of God, wherein they are conversant, to the end that everything may be transacted with good order and decency, and also to open and shut with the keys of the kingdom of heaven committed to them according to the charge given them by God. From these things may be learned what a glorious work the ministerial office is since so great things are affected by it. Yea, how highly necessary it is for man's salvation, which is also the reason why the Lord will have such an office always to remain. For Christ said when he sent forth his apostles to officiate in his holy function, Lo, I am always with you even unto the end of the world. For we see his pleasure is that this holy office, for the persons to whom he here speaketh could not live to the end of the world, should always be maintained on earth. And therefore Paul exhorteth Timothy to commit that which he had heard of him to faithful men who were able to teach others, and he also, having ordained Titus minister, further commanded him to ordain elders in every city, Titus 1.5. Forasmuch, therefore, as we, for the maintaining of this office in the church of God, are now to install a new minister of the word, and having sufficiently spoken of the office of such persons, therefore you, Reverend Daniel Klein, shall arise and answer to the following questions, which shall be proposed to you to the end, that it may appear to all here present that you are inclined to accept of this office as above described. First, I ask thee whether thou feelest in thy heart that thou art lawfully called of God's church, and therefore of God himself to this holy ministry. Secondly, whether thou dost believe the books of the Old and New Testament to be the only word of God and the perfect doctrine of salvation, and dost reject all doctrine repugnant thereto? And thirdly, whether thou dost promise faithfully to discharge thy office according to the same doctrine as above described, and to adorn it with a godly life, also to submit thyself in case thou shouldest become delinquent either in life or doctrine to ecclesiastical admonition, according to the public ordinances 
of the churches? Reverend Klein, what is your answer? God, our Heavenly Father, who has called thee to his holy ministry, enlighten thee with his Holy Spirit, strengthen thee with his hand, and so govern thee in thy ministry that thou mayest decently and fruitfully walk therein to the glory of his name, the propagation of the kingdom of his Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. We now, at the instruction of the council, turn to the form of subscription, which is found in the very last printed page of the Psalter. And after reading that form, we will ask Reverend Klein to come forward and sign that formula. The formula reads this way, we, the undersigned professors of the Protestant Reformed churches, ministers of the gospel, elders and deacons of the Protestant Reformed congregation of Dune, Iowa, of classes west, do hereby sincerely and in good conscience before the Lord declare by this our subscription that we heartily believe and are persuaded that all the articles and points of doctrine contained in the Confession and Catechism of the Reformed Churches, together with the explanation of some of the aforesaid doctrine made by the National Synod of Dort, 1618-19, do fully agree with the Word of God. We promise, therefore, diligently to teach and faithfully to defend the aforesaid doctrine without either directly or indirectly contradicting the same by our public preaching or writing. We declare, moreover, that we not only reject all errors that militate against this doctrine, and particularly those which were condemned by the above-mentioned synod, but that we are disposed to refute and contradict these and to exert ourselves in keeping the church free from such errors. And if hereafter any difficulties or different sentiments respecting the aforesaid doctrines should arise in our minds, we promise that we will neither publicly nor privately propose, teach, or defend the same, either by preaching or writing, until we have first revealed such sentiments to the consistory, classes, and synod, that the same may be there examined, being ready always cheerfully to submit to the judgment of the consistory, classes, and synod, under the penalty in case of refusal, to be by that very fact suspended from our office. And further, if at any time the consistory classes or synod upon sufficient grounds of suspicion and to preserve the uniformity and purity of doctrine may deem it proper to require of us a further explanation of our sentiments respecting any particular article of the Confession of Faith, Catechism, or the explanation of the National Synod, we do hereby promise to be always willing and ready to comply with such requisition. Under the penalty above mentioned, reserving for ourselves, however, the right of an appeal, whenever we shall believe ourselves aggrieved by the sentence of the consistory, the classes, or the synod, and until a decision is made upon such an appeal, we will acquiesce in the determination 
and judgment already passed. You come forward to sign. record of all those who've ever signed the formula of subscription in Dune Protestant Reformed Church is in the consistory minutes, as now this will be also. Then the form continues, take heed therefore, beloved brother and fellow servant in Christ, unto thyself and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made thee overseer, to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. Love Christ and feed his sheep, taking the oversight of them not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being Lord over God's heritage, but as an example to the flock. Be an example of believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Neglect not the gift that is in thee. Meditate upon those things. Give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting may appear to all. Take heed to thy doctrine and continue steadfast therein. Bear patiently all sufferings and oppressions as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. For in doing this thou shalt save both thyself and them that hear thee. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, thou shalt receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. And you likewise, beloved Christians, receive this your minister in the Lord with all gladness and hold such in reputation. Remember that God himself through him speaketh unto and beseecheth you. Receive the word which he, according to the scripture, shall preach unto you, not as the word of man, but as it is in truth the word of God. Let the feet of those that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things be beautiful and pleasant unto you. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit to your, yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. If you do these things, it shall come to pass that the peace of God shall enter into your houses and that you who receive this man in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward and through his preaching, believing in Christ, shall through Christ inherit life eternal. Since no man is of himself fit for any of these things, let us call upon God with thanksgiving. Let us pray. Merciful God, we thank thee that it pleases thee by the ministry of men to gather a church to thyself unto life eternal from amongst the lost children of men. We bless thee for so graciously providing the church in this place with a faithful minister. We beseech thee to qualify him daily more and more by the Holy Spirit for the ministry to which thou hast ordained and called him. Enlighten his understanding to comprehend thy holy word and give him utterance that he may boldly open his mouth to make known 
and dispense the mysteries of the gospel. Endue him with wisdom and valor to rule the people aright over which he is set and to preserve them in Christian peace to the end that thy church under his administration and by his good example may increase in number and in virtue and in courage to bear the difficulties and troubles which he may meet with in his ministry, that being strengthened by the comfort of the Spirit, he remain, may remain steadfast to the end and receive with all faithful servants into the joy of his Master. Give thy grace also to this people in church that they may becomingly deport themselves toward this their minister, that they may acknowledge him to be sent of thee, that they may receive his doctrine with all reverence and submit themselves to his exhortations, to the end that they may, by his word, believing in Christ, be made partakers of eternal life. Hear us, O Father, through thy beloved Son, who has taught us to pray, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let us rise now for the doxology. <clears throat> 